Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of History After Hours. My name is Kevin Pumphrey, and with me like normal is Mr. Ron Franklin. And this is a very special episode of the podcast. We are recording this on May the 4th, 2023. And on this episode, we interview Mr. David Rose. David is the father of one of our former students at Lakeside, and he is also a history buff that has a great recollection of growing up during the 50s and 60s and being drafted in Vietnam. This interview added some great perspective from a person that actually lived many of the seminal events that we teach about. So we had a great time talking to Mr. Rose, and with that, we hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of History After Hours. My name is Kevin Pumphrey and with me like normal is Mr. Ron Franklin. And today we have a very special podcast. Uh, We have a gentleman named David Rose who is joining us who is very interested in history, but also has lived a lot of the history that we teach. So welcome to the podcast. If you don't mind, just kind of give us a summary of whatever you want to, your life, your experiences, and then we'll just go from there. Basically, how I got to be the artifact that I am. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I grew up in a very small town just outside of Woodstock, New York. And uh, I went to a run-room school for my first year. And then um, they consolidated. And we had to take 20 towns to get a school, um, enough kids to have a high school. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in here and I'm just marveling at this classroom here. We had, this was in the 50s when I started mm-hmm. school. And we had a blackboard. Sometimes chalk, not always. We had on one corner, there was a little American flag sticking out of there. On the other side was a picture of Eisenhower. And this is a very Republican era, era, part of the state, upstate there. And uh, I, I think even after Kennedy got elected, they left Eisenhower. <laughs> it was an economic move or not. But that's what we had. Oh, we did have a, a set of encyclopedias in the back. I think they left um, World War II as a toss-up. I mean, that's how... And that's what we had. And I'm looking around here. It's just marvelous what uh, what's here. Oh, yeah. Mr. Franklin's room is, is quite spectacular. Yeah. And it has come a long way. I mean, the uh, how, much, how much information kids have at their fingertips now. Exactly. So exactly. you grew up outside of New York, you say? Yeah, in the Catskill Mountains. Oh, wow. Okay. This was, like I said, a one-room schoolhouse, but we were just 100 miles from Times Square. You know, a lot of people don't. When I moved to Arkansas, to Little Rock, it's the first time I lived in a town that had a stoplight, or yeah. <laughs> had red lights on it. You know, it's just, it was strange. Um, but it, it, in a way, it was it was nice because it was a town that was very progressive. Because even before the festival, it was known for artists. And uh, mm-hmm. you're familiar with Joseph Campbell's work, Mythology. I don't guess Not so. specifically, okay. no. Yeah. Well, it doesn't matter. Then you know, He wrote that there. And uh, our town supervisor for a while was Theodore Sturgeon, who wrote uh, you know, the science fiction. He was, he was a town supervisor. It's funny how you went from New York to here and marveled at the stoplight. When people think of New York, exactly. they think of the city. Exactly. You know, so, but, but New York is actually a lot of rural area. Oh, yeah. It's, it's about the same size as Arkansas. The number one industry in New York is agriculture. So that was, you know, kind of like culture shock for me. It was good in a way because at that time, this was the early 70s, even in the cities, Southern culture is rural culture. Mm-hmm. And it was easier for me to, to do that because that's the culture I grew up in. So what drew you 
Well, let's back up a little bit. So you went to high school. That experience, I guess you went all the way through? Did you, I mean, no, no. I, see, I'm dyslexic, and that was something they didn't know about at the time. Right. So yeah. I had a real hard time, and I left after uh, 11th grade. Right, which is something else that kids don't realize, like, especially in Arkansas and in rural areas, people had to farm, you know, to, to get yeah. all the way through was not, like, it's so compulsory, it's so normal today, but it was much different back then, the expectations. and Yeah, my grandparents were subsistence farmers. Oh, okay, yeah. And then after World War II, things changed because, um, you know, any war speeds up technology. Right. And they developed, they had to develop ways to, to do the farming without the, the men because the men were overseas. And so they kept those. So farming didn't need that, um, didn't need as many people. And uh, they started opening up, you know, new markets and developers, you know, like eastern Arkansas with all that yeah, you know, this is the mountains, and it was stony. I, I, I swear there's more topsoil under the football field in Stuttgart than there is in my whole county. <laughs> right, <laughs> where yeah. I grew. It was just glacial till. Mm-hmm. But the 50s, uh, one of the things you have to understand about the 60s is that they were, they were rebelling against the 50s. And the 50s, it's hard to overestimate how conservative things were then. Well, one of the this is one of the questions I wanted to ask you because we just we're working through Cold War right now in yeah. a lot of our classes, uh, and I know you did a, a segment on uh, the Duck and Cover video and oh yeah some of those pro- yeah so we we covered through those and we talked about the PSA videos that the government put out and yeah and uh, you had mentioned how you had uh, you remember doing the Duck and Cover drills was right that, was that accurate yeah and and I I caught the fact that you felt like it was a little bit of nonsense, even at that age. How old were you when you were going through some of those, when you had that sort of realization that maybe this wouldn't save me? Yeah, well, I guess I first saw the thing in in first grade or when they first are 54, I don't know, first or second grade, they Mm -hmm. they brought this um, Bert the Turtle duck and cover things. Yeah, yeah. Have you showed the kids some of that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the first time we saw it, oh, man. Got those under those desks. Oh no, you know, and they, they told us all this stuff and the flash, don't look at the flash, it'll mm-hmm. burn your retinas like bacon. And then it told us, you know, then there's gonna come the shock wave and then the fireball it'll, which will melt the urinals in the schools. So we're there underneath a desk that's made out of about an inch of <laughs> maple. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and uh, you know, after a while it kinda lost its charm. I was imagine. Sure. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's one scene where this boy's riding this bike, and you see a flash, and he drops the bike, and he ducks down a storm mm-hmm. drain or something like that. And all I was doing was looking at that bike, and I was thinking, man, that's a nice bike. It's <laughs> <laughs> nicer than my bike. And then what would happen if I came upon a scene where the boy, may he rest in peace, is burnt to a cinder, but the bike is still in good shape. <laughs> What's protocol here? Yeah, right. <laughs> He's not going to need that He's bike. He's going to need sure. Yeah. So we and, and you know I've been talking to my boys about this. Um, you know they do the active shooter drills. Mm-hmm. Well, we're doing the duck and covers, and at first they're really scary. But then after a while, you know the bomb didn't drop on our school, but it didn't drop on any other school either. Right. And you know it just kind of just didn't didn't scare us nearly as much. Mm-hmm. But the duck and cover drill, I mean the Active shooter drills, I mean, there are schools that are getting hit by that. Right. And um, I had to come get my son one day. They called me up and they said his heart's racing and he's having a hard time catching his breath. I said, what's wrong? And she said, well, don't worry. This happens a lot after an active shooter Mm -hmm. drill. And, you know, just 
it doesn't have to be that way. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, this it's been almost a year now since the Uvalde shooting. Mm-hmm. I know that was happening it, nearly towards the end of school. I remember when the, that news broke. And it just reinforces the idea that it's a different world that we're living in now with a with an internal danger that yeah. we haven't that I don't remember facing when I was in school. I graduated in yeah. 1987. Uh, and it wasn't a reality then, or at least it wasn't broadcast as a reality. But now we have to be more conscientious about it. But going back to the 50s just for a second. Yeah. Uh, how, how would you, because you, you talked about the 60s being a rebellion against. You, do you think that, that that sort of Mayberry-esque nostalgic view that a lot of people have of the 50s is is rooted in anything real or was it just something that was that was sanitized and delivered to the american people like how, do you have any insight on that perhaps oh yeah it was it was just sold to us really i mean it, it wasn't uh, i mean we had all our t-shirts were white and they didn't say anything and everybody was the same and if you watched any of those shows i, I get my health care through the va and i was in the waiting room down here at this clinic down here and they had the Dennis the Menace show mm-hmm. on. <laughs> and, you know, they slept in twin beds and they, you know, the father was always, and everybody was always so pleasant and everything like that. But uh, I don't imagine it was that way. Yeah. It was part of the Hollywood codes that governed what could be uh, oh, yeah. shown on TV and movies. Yeah. yeah. Of course, this was in the wake of McCarthyism. And so there was a lot of a lot of propaganda from all over. Uh, I assume this is where the hatred of communism really was emerging in the 50s and what is American and what are they and we're not that, so we're this. Oh, yeah. And it was a fear. And in a way, in some way, COVID uh, reminded me of that. You know, it's a fear of something that you can't see. We mm-hmm. were afraid of com- all those great movies, you know, those great uh, invasion of the body snatchers, all those great sci fi yeah. movies. They were all just thinly veiled allegories for. Um, I never thought about it that way. Uh, you know, yeah. for communism, that's what they were. You know, the, wow. The, um, I haven't thought about that either. I'm going to have to go back and watch some of those now. <laughs> I don't think that's when that really look at it from a from a uh, Cold War point of view. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, they started appealing to teenagers. They started doing educational videos for teenagers because you know the baby boomers are growing up mm-hmm. and uh, they got to put them. They got to tell them what America is. Well, so okay, so transition out of that into the Vietnam era. At what point were you aware? of the growing American presence in that part of the world. I mean, did, was that something that was broadcast on the news or was it something that just sort of, cause I mean, the way we teach it, I have to teach it sort of after the fact I was born in 69. So I don't, I don't have a, a clear memory of some of those early things, obviously. Um, well, um, we were, we, we lived in such a news vacuum then. Mm-hmm. There were only three television channels mm-hmm. and sometimes well, there were only two that we got. Cronkite and... Yeah, mm-hmm. that's who else I would name. And there was a half an hour, half an hour news. There wasn't any twenty-four hour news stations. There was right. half an hour news every night. And Walter Cronkite was, you know, straight up with us. We wouldn't, you believe anything Walter told us. Well, see, that's nothing about growing up in Woodstock. It's a little bit different because, so somehow we were aware of a lot more there. Things going on. There was this one guy, um, Tim Harden. Do you ever hear? He's a songwriter. Yeah, yeah, I know that name. Yeah, by if, if I was a carpenter mm-hmm. and. Uh, reasons to believe but he lived there and uh he was in vietnam very early on early 60s when we just had things like that training missions and whatnot yeah yeah yeah, before it started ramping up and uh you know he would tell us something about it so we would know more a little bit more about than most people would but you know it's probably but even to precede that like say the uh bay of pigs and the cuban missile crisis and 
like were those part of a, a larger consciousness for you growing? Oh yeah, when you were younger. Yeah. Oh yeah. Once we start those talking cover drills, we were paying attention. Then to it all was on. That. Okay. Yeah. And it was just all, you know, things just got worse and worse. It seemed like. Do Do you think that with the carefully planned image of what the American dream was in the fifties, and again, sort of that that I'll use the word sanitized again. If do you think that that was part of what caused such disillusionment in the 60s because when people realized that that was sort of illusionary that that caused them to be even more uh, distant from what the government was saying or you know because I remember we, we just got through talking about the the, the disillusionment with Johnson and, and, and him not even running in, in the next election yeah know? so I just wonder if that, if that was a counterpoint to uh, as, as a big as the pendulum swings in the direction when people go no all of this has been sort of We've been milked, so to speak. Well, every generation thinks that their parents got it all wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Now, it's almost a disservice to us that our parents were wrong about a lot of stuff, you know, Vietnam, care of the environment, race relations, and like that. But something I want to tell the kids with their listening here, they were absolutely right about drugs. Hmm. I mean, Hmm. we're still trying to get that genie back in the bottle. I mean, I tell my boys... Look, if drugs and alcohol don't bring you down, there's nothing you can do. There's, you know, there's nothing else that you're not going to be able to do. Yeah. Um, but um, you know, sixties are, are you know are known for that. What I'd say is, uh, don't do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> See this stuff? Don't put it in your mouth. Same thing you would tell a two year old. Keep keep away from the dangerous stuff. So you were pretty young when JFK was elected in 1960. Was there a sense of, like, here's a new president? He's not from that older generation. He's a president for us? Or did uh, you they, ha- If they kept Eisenhower's picture up, then... Well, yeah, probably well, not where you were you know, from. Our, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, still I, like Ike. <laughs> um, I was rooting for Kennedy because, you know, you could just see Nixon was not a good person. Yeah. And, oh, uh, was it that obvious? Oh, yeah. You, you look back on it now, but, um, you know, Johnson, we talked about him, he... I think if he hadn't been so bullheaded about Vietnam, there would be a memorial on the mall in D.C. for him. Because what he did for well, civil know, rights, civil rights, right. yeah, I mean, that was poverty a, in half too. That yeah, was a big thing. We actually, I just had this conversation with because we said '64, Gulf of Tonkin, but then, but at the same time, Civil Rights Act. You know, and he and he keeps pushing those agendas to help. Uh, to to right some of the wrongs from from the previous oh, yeah, generations, and, and the but then education. further and further and further entrenching into the Vietnam story. Yeah, well, he was just stubborn, bullheaded. And, Do you think uh, that he was convinced that we were doing the right thing there, and that, or, or was no, he, he just, just taking bad advice? Quit. Or he was just he was getting all kinds of bad advice too. But he just wasn't he wasn't going to quit. He wasn't going to be the first American president to lose a war. Ah, there you go. He okay. was just entrenched in that whole thing there. And uh, if you see this movie um, Trial of the Chicago Seven, mm-hmm. watch it. It's great. Borat, you know, the guy that plays Borat, right. mm-hmm. he's in it, and you don't think it's him at first. He's just great. Yeah. But you can see the difference between Nixon's approach to things and what Johnson's approach, especially when they bring Johnson's uh, man in there to talk about it. And, and uh, Johnson may have been wrongheaded, but uh, I think Nixon was just evil. You know what I've heard, and, and I'm not sure this is true or not, that when Johnson decided he wasn't going to run in March of 68, he declared he wasn't going to run. He started to make trying to end the Vietnam War right then, mm-hmm. and he went and he, you know, he started talks. But Nixon wanted to keep the war going mm-hmm. because it was going to be a uh, his campaign thing. 
Yeah, we kind of just talked about this. We, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, that's that's interesting. He, he was making secret that deals in the hall. and connections. He was the, saying, "Look, don't do this. Illegal. Don't make the deal with." with yeah, wait Johnson. till I'm in office. Wait we'll, till I'm in office. <laughs> and it's well, ironic yeah. is that he ran in '68 saying he was going to end the war. He ran in '72 saying he was going to end mm-hmm. the war. <laughs> they flew the last helicopter out of. Uh, Left Saigon after he'd taken his yeah, helicopter 75. ride. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah right. He'd already, he'd already <laughs> took his helicopter uh, ride before. So I've got to ask you, why, we, we mentioned it a while ago, the Cuban Missile Crisis, kind of the pinnacle, the height of the Cold War. Do you remember when you heard the news? Because I, I haven't talked to that many people that could remember, you know. I, I You know, it's crazy because yeah. JFK called journalists to keep it out of the news as long as he could before he could present it to the yeah. American public. Yeah. And then it was on every TV. Do you remember that? Well, yeah, there was all that. Fr- I remember Sputnik going over and my grandfather and I would go out in the yard and look up at it. And he explains. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah we, you know, yeah, that just scared people mm-hmm. because, okay. okay, they could, they had a bomb. They could fly things over ahead. What's going to stop them from dropping that bomb? And we can't do anything about it. But my grandfather was a, you know, a, a man of science, mm-hmm. and he said to us, "Look, this is not going to happen. Yeah, that, can't just, do that. That thing's about the size of a beach ball. It's <laughs> <laughs> going around there." But then, that that you know, the Cuban missile, Bay of Pigs, Cuban missile crisis. Things just got darker and darker. And then when Kennedy was assassinated, mm-hmm. and and um, I mean, that was just a very dark time for us, for the whole country. And then <laughs> I said to the four in. In early 1964, we all turned on our TV sets, watching the Ed Sullivan, and on come these four boys from Liverpool. Oh, yeah. And they were as bright and colorful as anybody can be on a black and white TV. <laughs> and when we saw them, that's why people screamed. There was just so much pent up inside of them. They screamed. Oh. I never thought about the timeline between the, the sort of the sadness and the, the national mourning over the Kennedy's loss. And then the energy and excitement that came along with the Beatles. The British invasion. When did they, um, 64? 64, yeah. When, were the, was, when was it, when were the Rolling Stones? It was right about the same time, They too. came over afterwards. Somewhat, 60, same year, or, or 65, 60? Yeah, the, 64, the, the, you know, the Beatles hit first, and then the Stones, mm-hmm. and then some of the other groups started coming on. But, um, you know, the Beatles were just so different, and so, it was just somebody, it was our music. Mm, it was yeah. our people. They were roughly our age, and, uh. Yeah, that was just a, see, I'd kind of dropped out before that. <laughs> mm-hmm. But that's when, you know, the, the, the dropouts, people who were dropping out from, you know, believing uh, went from, from a trickle to a flood. And, right. Yeah, the 60s was just a time of division. You could see it, you know, when you talk about civil rights, Brown versus Board was in the 50s. You know, Rosa Parks was in the 55. Little Rock was the 57. And so, like, the seeds of what's going to come in the 60s started a little bit in the 50s. Oh, yeah. You know, the beatnik movement, the beat movement turned into the counterculture. And so you kind of see it in the 50s, but the 60s is where, you know, with Vietnam and with the protest and the civil rights movement. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that the fact that the um, Vietnam War had a lot to do with um, the just dominated the culture. Yeah. And... uh, Excuse me. The reason that you don't have the kind of protests you have now is because there isn't that isn't a draft, there isn't the war. It's also weirdly we have more news available to us. But I, I was thinking about our experience in Afghanistan recently. There was hardly a story on unless it was 
here's a soldier come home to surprise his kid, jump out of box at school, and oh, there's this nice reunion. Well, they don't show him going back in three weeks. Right. We, we, we never we didn't get daily updates like like people did for Vietnam. It wasn't on the news every night. It wasn't part of the. I've I've argued the point that, and I've had some kids who've had friends and family serve that they felt it was true that unless you had somebody who that you knew personally who was there, you didn't think much about our involvement in Afghanistan or Iraq or a picket place. But I was but focused on Afghanistan specifically because we were there for so long, and hardly anybody really thought much about it. Whereas yeah. Vietnam, it was very much part of the. Like here are reporters on the ground reporting. Here's what happened right, today. Right. Here's what the yeah. government said, and here's what we saw. And you can compare right. the two things out. I, I mean, even with the Pentagon Papers, there was an Afghan paper uh, release that happened several years ago, and hardly anybody flinched. And I was really stunned yeah. about that. We'd, it's almost like we've been lulled yeah. to sleep by the lack of information, even though we have more reporting. I just right. thought, and I we also have odd. a volunteer army now, and we we just send the same guys over and so on. So if it had been a so yeah. if it had been a draft, even though this was sort of a do you, do you agree with the? I've heard people argue this was a backdoor draft by sending all of the National Guardsmen over. But you think that that's an accurate description? Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know that. Mm, I don't know about that. When I back in the '60s, if you were in the National Guard, you didn't go. Yeah. They didn't call up the guard. They didn't call up the reserves. In fact, you needed to know. You needed to be connected to somebody. To get in either the guard or the reserves. Oh, really? and if your oh, parents wow. had money, they sent you to college, or they got a doctor to write you a little bit of letter. Mm-hmm. I was in the army in bone spurs. Si- yeah, bone spurs. <laughs> 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 this is kind of off the subject. <laughs> I, I went up on Photoshop and I got a picture of a, a, a foot with bone spurs, and I took it out to uh, the office depot there. I said, could you print this for me on the clear thing? He said, yeah. <laughs> so I, I gave me a bone spur x-ray for Christmas. There you go. <laughs> for Christmas. <laughs> I can make some more if you guys think yeah, you might Well, you some. know what? I'd hang one up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Fit nicely in here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, when I was in the Army, this is like 68, 69. Now, were, you, time, were you drafted? Yes. Okay. Everybody mm. was drafted. Oh, okay. And the Army at that time was predominantly... Uh, Poor um, rural whites and poor urban blacks and poor Hispanics from both, and uh, but um, that's you know basically what it was yeah. by that time, and mostly all conscripts. The only people who weren't drafted were people who enlisted because the uh, recruiter lied to them <laughs> oh. and said, "Look, if you if you sign up for three years, you're going to get to do you, you're not going to be as much danger as if you get drafted." Mm. And uh, then we all lined up there in basic training, and the guy said, "Okay, all you draftees, take one step forward." And we said, "Oh shit, what's going to happen here?" Yeah. <laughs> we all took one step forward. And he said, "Okay, turn around, and look at those guys behind you. Those were the guys who enlisted." He said, "You're going to be out of this army a year before them." <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> and that's and that's the only difference, really. Hmm. Wow, so you were drafted in 66? No, say, I was drafted at the end of 68. Okay, the end of 68. But I think so, I, didn't, I didn't report till... Um, so after Tet? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Tet was a big... It made a big difference. Now, up before then, we were told we're winning, and we're winning, we're mm-hmm. winning. Mm-hmm. And we were told that afterwards, but we just didn't believe it anymore. And uh, How did that affect your uh, morale going in? I didn't have any morale. <laughs> you didn't have any, just okay. had to go. Yeah. Just went. No, it's yeah. like I said, you know, I was just counterpunching at that time. I was okay. just trying to figure out, okay, what can I do here? You know, I, I'm, I'm going to try to do, you know, come out of here alive. And uh, I just got real lucky with the things I did. And, where, yeah. where exactly were you in country? I was on Okinawa for a year. Okay. 
And uh, I spent like the first nine months painting murals in Fort Dix. Oh, okay. Oh, well, hey, yeah. You know, I just kind of talked my way into it. I'd never even been to art school. I just talked my way into it because I saw somebody start a mural there. And I said, you know, you need, who's painting this? And they said, well, he's gone. I said, you know, I could do this. Mm-hmm. Said, okay, so they kept me there at the reception station. And I would have stayed there my whole two years. But I started putting peace symbols in the gun sites and in the hubcaps <laughs> and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then they found that. Like you said, counterpunch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, okay, so what happened, what was your experience like in Okinawa then? You were, you were there for how long? Two years? No? I was there for a year. A year, okay. Yeah. Okinawa is where they flew, um, you know, those... Um, Arc lights, the uh, Rolling Thunder. Okay, yeah, the, for the yeah. for the bombing raids. Yeah, the yeah. carpet bombing. They flew those out of Okinawa. That was the Air oh, Force. I didn't realize. There. Okay. And what we did there was repair trucks. They brought trucks from Vietnam over there and and uh, half tracks and and um, light vehicles like that. And they had a it was like you know assembly line in uh, Detroit, hmm. and they disassembled. The trucks, they were all busted up or shot up or whatever. And they disassembled them, and they took all the parts off, and then they brought new parts from the States, and they had an assembly line where they put together new trucks and sent them back again. But I didn't do that either. I was an illustrator over there. So you were, you were in Okinawa for a year, yeah. and then they started discovering your peace signs on your mural. No, <laughs> no, no. Was, I, was, I was in Fort Dix. Oh, oh yeah. Fort Dix. I was in Fort Dix, and I could have stayed my whole two years right there just oh, painting murals. Oh, but that's murals. when they—and then they sent you to Okinawa— and then what? Well, they sent me to welding school first, but, you know, the Army being one of it, they sent me to Okinawa, and, man, it was hot there, and it's oh, hot yeah. welding. And I said, you know, I'm an artist. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, oh, man, we could use you. And uh, I just did illustrations for okay. you know, publications and stuff like that. So, yeah, after Tet, was you aware? Okay, I know you went at the end of 68, but, you know, 68's a crazy year. Oh, yeah. And was everybody aware of how crazy that year was as you were going through it? Or does it take a few years looking back on it before you're like... And to tie into that, there there was a a really interesting documentary that I saw from uh, Ken Burns on his his documentary on Vietnam. And he did a whole segment just on 1968. Yeah. So, like, can you explain how going through that year was, was like... For you or for the people that you knew? like Well, it's just that you knew anything, nothing was going to get any better. Mm-hmm. You just had, you know, it started out with Tet Offensive, and then we had, uh, um, you know, assassinations right and left. We had... Uh, Bobby see. Kennedy and, and Did, King. I, I saw, you said on one of your videos that, the, that Bobby's assassination hit you pretty hard. Yeah, I saw him as the person who could kind of... We had what we, the generation gap now. Mm-hmm. I mean, my sons and I drive along in the car, and they've got their... And, you know, we're listening to Rolling Stones. We're listening to newer stuff. We're listening because mm-hmm. that's they're, choo- they're choosing it. And so you know, there's, there isn't a generation gap now like there was then. But, um, yeah, you never would have uh, dreamt of listening to the same music your father was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought Bobby Kennedy could be the guy to bridge that. And, you know, let's get this war over with. And, uh, you know, I just saw him as that guy. And that, of course, helped spark the Democratic Convention madness. Oh, yeah. With the Chicago 7 that you were talking about earlier. Yeah, there was that. So, yeah, 68, you know, when I talk about it in U.S. history, it's just one thing after another. And it really changed the country. And, of course, then here comes Nixon winning as the law and order president, which, of course, is what it is. (laughs) (laughs) You know? I mean, even his friends didn't like him. (laughs) I don't know how he... uh... Just a bad person. I was writing a little story about, you know, a short time after that in Berkeley going into a campus, a juice bar there, and they still had a poster of 
Nixon on a toilet. They had a famous poster, mm-hmm. Daglo posters. And what about um, what about Dr. King's assassination? What do you recall about that? I, I remember one teacher in school making a really bad remark about it. Oh, well. Mm-hmm. Well, see, where I grew up, you know, it's almost like we didn't have white privilege because we were all white and none of us were particularly privileged. Mm. My um, my brother married a woman who worked at the post office and we thought he was a social climber. <laughs> but, you know, I'm sure we had advantages over being in a, in a poor black town. But so, yeah, I liked I liked King. I liked the way he was, the things he was saying. And, and but we took it kind of hard when... Uh, um, was it surprising that it happened? Was it surprising that, that Dr. King was assassinated? Um, or because there had, I mean, he'd been under investigation. He'd been under threat before. I, oh, assassination yeah. attempts left and right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, you know, I just don't remember it being, um, mm-hmm. being that way. And uh, you're talking about Hot Springs um, was kind of a unique. It's, it's. This is a really unique. I call it the Hot Springs bubble mm-hmm. because right, it's yeah. different than. Did you uh, remember Bobby Mitchell? He was a running back, Hall of Fame, NFL yeah, Hall of I, Fame. Yeah, I mean, I know the name. He's yeah. from Hot Springs. Mm-hmm. And he made that observation that, you know, here he didn't feel, in Hot Springs, he just didn't feel that racial discrimination as much as he did when he traveled outside of Hot Why do you Springs. think that is? Why, is it, does it go back all, to, all the way to gangsterism and the people from yeah, the cities maybe, coming in? Or? Maybe, yeah. There, there, there was a clear line between black and white folks here, as mm-hmm. far as I can tell. But... Um, you know, Hot Springs has always been a tourist town. Oh, yeah, and that's it, right. it's got this welcoming feeling, and people coming from Chicago and 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 the Midwest and down and through here. So I think you just have more accepting attitudes about a lot of things. Would you compare? Just take a take a turn here. Would you compare the feeling that you had in the late '60s to anything that's going on in our current political climate, as far as the? Uh, Oh, you're a leftist, or oh, you're, you know, you know <laughs> there's a there's a lot of finger pointing and a lot of name calling. Yes, there. yes, I, you know, in some ways, I think the '60s was probably the most divisive time in this country since the Civil War, and what we're seeing now is kind of a repeat in a way. But of course, you know, history they say history repeats itself, but it really never does. It's right. just you know, in broad strokes. Um, who's our Who's our George Wallace? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't have to answer that. <laughs> no, you can answer. <laughs> yeah, they say history doesn't repeat; it rhymes. <laughs> you get yeah. something very similar. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I, it was clearly young against old in the '60s. And that don't trust anybody over thirty. Like that, don't trust anybody over thirty. Yeah, it was it was young versus the old, and so you knew who was going to win. You just had to wait. (laughs) (laughs) And now it's not quite, but it's starting to line itself up. That's why I was talking about being optimistic right now. It's starting to line up that way again. We were talking about the um, Supreme Court election in Wisconsin, uh, where you know it's it's a out of the way state. It's a off year election. It's not even during election season, and it's for the Supreme Court. You know, who's going to turn out for an election like that? Right, yeah. Well, anyway, but it was really important because they're, they're, they're ruling on cases, you know, just not just abortion, but for gerrymandering, mm-hmm. which could make Wisconsin tip one way or the other. So it was big, and man, they money poured in for that election, and everybody said, well, it's going to be close. It's going to be, you know, neck and neck on down. The Democrat won by 11 points, which in this world is a landslide. Mm -hmm. And what tipped it was kids 
under 25 showed up in the same numbers that they showed up during the midterm elections. Wow. That, I think it's going to be that Gen Z factor I keep hearing about it, that, mm-hmm. that that's a, a growing reality. They're, they're young, engaged. they're active, they're mad. And so we'll see what that means moving forward. But I, yeah, I think that may be yeah. a sign of things. They were the ones that were on the, um, in Tennessee at the Capitol. Mm-hmm. My first 15 years to teach, mm-hmm. students didn't, they barely knew who the president was, vice president. I mean, <laughs> and around 2016, when Trump ran and became president, that was a huge difference because kids came in knowing Supreme Court justices and secretaries of states and that they got engaged. Really? Yeah. yeah. Good or bad, we can talk about that, but yeah. but it was interesting how that switched for those young kids. And I think they are more engaged now. And I think that they, they realize that they can make a difference where my generation, you know, I'm Gen X, we just played Nintendo and, you know, I, we, I grew up in the 90s mm-hmm. and that was just such a weird time to grow up. But I love your extreme sports. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Snowboarding in the Olympics. Yeah, we had plenty of time. With yeah, yeah skateboards. No, you, you contributed. You contributed <laughs> to the culture. I saw this. You won the Cold War. You had extra time on your hands. Give yeah. EMA. There's a lot of stuff. Yeah, right, yeah. I was watching this uh, one Winter Olympics, and they had a guy from Sweden or someplace like that, and he was complaining that they were covering the snowboarding a lot more than they were covering the cross-country skiing. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> a first-world problem, oh, really. <laughs> you know, <laughs> they're coming into a turn. <laughs> well, it's almost, and I don't mean to offend any rednecks here, but it's almost like covering NASCAR. It's like <laughs> another left turn. <laughs> it's coming up. <laughs> you don't want to do that on the radio, for sure. Yeah. Can you be, to be the play-by-play guy NASCAR yeah, for, on the radio? Right. <laughs> play-by-play, yeah. Um, so looking back, so 60s and 70s obviously was a formative time for you. Was there one event or thing that happened that really, was it was it the Tet Offensive? Was it the Beatles? The Beatles? Was it, you know, what, what really, did you see your life going this way? And then all of a sudden you kind of, your mind kind of changed on something and you started going another, was there a formative experience, a, a single event, or was it just kind of a culmination of being drafted? Being drafted? Well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Well, getting out and still being alive and thinking, okay, now I got to start making plans for my life. There was right. no sense in planning for your life before that, oh. because I knew that I, I'm a high school dropout. I'm not going to get to go to college. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. I keep hearing you know, CCR's fortunate son running through my head. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. right. I am going to, uh, you know, I'm going to get drafted and that's what's going to happen to me. So, I was, you know, then I, I got out and I said, okay, now I got to plan. The first thing I planned was, you know, I was coming from a, Okinawa, it's kind of semi-tropical island. I was coming from there to upstate New York in mm. January. Yikes. I didn't get warm to 4th of July. <laughs> and I said, okay, I got to go someplace, <laughs> someplace different, or at least something warmer. So you <laughs> started to head south then at that point? Yeah. Yeah, yeah kicked around. What so. drew you to this area then? Well, my sister was here. She was a VISTA volunteer okay. in Little Rock. So I came to visit her and uh, I wound up you're familiar with the Quapaw Quarter, mm-hmm. you know, like these old homes. Well, when I got there in like 71, um, the city had given up on them. They were in disrepair. Oh. They were just, uh, you know, they given over to uh, apartments and rooms to let, and a lot of them were boarded up and burnouts. And, and uh, of course, it was cheap space. And I thought it, and, you know, I, I had what it took to be an artist, and artists need personal freedom and uh, cheap space mm-hmm. and it you know it was there and I didn't have anything worth stealing so that worked out fine <laughs> but um, you know so I started living there and that's where I met these people who were you know doing things like starting a food co-op and uh, 
you know, they were still from the the sixties. Really, didn't hit the South until Willie Nelson grew his hair out, <laughs> and that was in seventy two or seventy three. Yeah, we were a little. Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. the sixties in the South was predominantly trying to hang on to the fifties. Oh yeah, uh, it was more sense. about the civil rights and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But there were some people, and but they were down here in the downtown part of. And you know, I spent you know, twenty years down. I started. You know, I bought a house for like. $13,000. Oh, wow. <laughs> I just assumed the loan. My payments, I, my friend and I, our payments were $75 a month. <laughs> Dang. That's great. And uh, I, I started fixing it up. You know, I, I grew up in the building trade, sort of, and I started fixing the house up, and pretty soon other people were moving. So I spent my 20 well, some years there. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, restoring old houses. Oh, that's cool. We, we got to live twi- through the, the 60s twice in New York. Yeah, and here. yeah, yeah. I got to go through them again. And, <laughs> the, and of course, I was going to leave the pack the, because I knew what they were. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I knew the mistakes not to You're going to love the music. Yeah. <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> that, that area in Hot Springs, though, is one of the, I mean, the, the, the I don't want to use the word renaissance, but at the same time, there's, it's been renovated, I guess is the right word. Oh, yeah. Use. It's a jewel the in the crown now. Very nice yeah, but there, they yeah. just didn't gave, they, they, they had given up on it back then. I worked down there. I never pulled a building permit. <laughs> I never saw an inspector. They didn't care what they didn't care. Did. Yeah, oh, they just wow. written the whole they had thing given off. up then. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they'd written the whole thing off. When I first moved into the house, I heard somebody shooting next door, and I looked out the window and I saw a guy with a gun shooting at the house next door. So I called the police, and they said, "Well, stay away from the window." Wow. And if you see anything in the morning, give us a call. Wow. <laughs> they yeah. were coming down there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, we're, that's a crazy thing. We're getting to where we're running out of time here. I want to ask you one more thing. And you've already given some advice to students is to say no to drugs. <laughs> Don't let that bring you down. But beyond that, as far as history goes, because we're history teachers, um, do you have anything that we could say to our students, the importance of history, learning history, or, or anything, any specific piece of advice you could give to them uh, that you think would be helpful? Well, I would say take an active part in your life. And to know where you're going, you have to know where you've been. So history is really important to that. And, you know, be politically active because that's going to affect your life, who's in office more than anything. I'm not saying go join the weathermen or the Simonese <laughs> <laughs> Liberation Army. But, you know, if you're going to protest, do it polite. And, and I just found this out. You know, Berkeley was like the beginning of mm-hmm. the anti-war stuff. And, you know, Mario Savio. Oh, yeah. Okay, when he stepped up on the, uh, in the car. And on the car. Doing- and gave that speech, lay your bodies on the gears and the lever and tell mm-hmm. the people who profit from the war machine that it's going to stop. He took his shoes off before he got up. They got to be polite. Because, you know, he didn't want to scratch the top of the car. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that kind of uh, peaceful and respectful, um, that's going to get you a lot farther than the Symbionese Liberation Army. Yeah. That's a great piece of advice because kids do want to get engaged and some of them see looting and fire, burn it down on TV and think that's the way. But really, Martin Luther King Jr. had it right. It's the nonviolent protest. Exactly. It gives you the moral high ground. And to you, you can't, not only are you protesting against something, but you're showing this is the way to do it. Yeah. We're not being destructive. 
So that's a great piece of advice. Well, uh, Mr. David Rose, thank you so much for joining us. Right, I, we got to do fun. this again at some we point. Do, we yeah, do. Absolutely. Yeah, it's yeah. a blast. Thank this you is, so much. This is too short. Get together and sit down and have coffee. Yeah, we'll do part two. Yeah. <laughs> part two. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you so much.